I want to introduce to you Jake Fuller at this time. Jake has served our nation as a Navy SEAL for six and a half years. And as uh, <laughs> he's been deployed multiple times. And uh, Jake, I want to invite you to just uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and your story. And then I have another question for you. Thank you, everybody, for uh, having me here today. Um, I just want to say that it's a privilege to be here, and I'm very grateful. And um, it's very evident as soon as you walk in here that the that the Holy Spirit is present. I can just feel God's hand over this church. So, um, you know, thank you for having me. And really, what um, my my journey has has taken me from um, really a, a place not too far from here, Keller, Texas. I grew up in in Keller. Uh, my wife and I both went to Keller High School, and um, honestly, I was kind of that normal suburban kid, um, much like uh, many of the kids here, um, but really my journey started um, when I was pretty young. My parents were divorced, and then I had some uh, pretty severe illness um, when I was younger, and what was really interesting is that as that, that journey progressed, I, I really started to look for something um, to, to kind of help um, help me prove that I was a man, honestly. And what ended up happening was at the age of about eight, which I know is kind of weird, but at the age of eight, I knew that I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Um, I, I can actually tell you the exact moment that I saw a Navy SEAL for the first time. I remember the, the feelings that I had. I remember the, the emotions that I had. Um, and it was really because I, I idolized them almost as a living God. And what's funny is, is that the man that I actually ended up, um, the, the first seal that I ever saw, I ended up working with. And what's funny is, is that, you know, as you guys all know, whenever you work with somebody, you realize they're not a God pretty quickly. <laughs> but um, for me, it, my journey was really about me trying to prove something. Um, and I really wanted to be a man. And I felt like so many times I had fallen short of that. And when I reached that pinnacle... I also reached a pinnacle in my life when I needed to be rescued and when I needed a Savior. So whenever Christ uh, came and brought me salvation and my eyes were opened, um, I I really got to see who the real Savior is and who the real hero is. Um, And I got to see, honestly, what what Christ um, has done for me. So... For me personally, I, I served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. I served in Operation Enduring Freedom. I served six and a half years in the SEAL teams. And, um, man, just grateful to be here now. Yeah. Tell me, Jake, for you, Memorial Day <clears throat> weekend, what does that mean to you as a Christ follower, as a believer in Jesus? You know, I, I think it's changed over time. Mm-hmm. And, and really the reason why is because when I was growing up, you know, I've got members of my family that served. And there's there's always kind of that, that understanding of, well, it's a, a day that we recognize those that sacrifice it all for freedom. Um, but what's interesting is, is that in our American culture, I don't know that we really know what that word freedom means. I don't know that we actually give it the, the due weight that it should have. Um, the reason why I say that is because you see it on the, the coffee mugs and, you know, fighting for freedom, or bumper stickers. I can see it all in my head. Um, but I was extremely patriotic, and I was a guy that when I was 16 was 
you know, training to, to become a Navy SEAL prior to going to football practice. And I mean, I, I was very, very patriotic and I thought that I understood, but as time progressed, what I really started to understand was that I was lost. And whenever I look at my experience, um, and when the bullets started flying, so to speak, what I found was that there was a savior that, that had died on a cross for me that freed me. And whether you have been freed from those chains, those chains or not, um, everybody in this room has felt those chains, the, the chains of, of life and of sin. Um, so for me, when those chains were the heaviest and they came off, I realized in that moment what freedom was, um, that, that a Savior had laid down his life and sacrificed for me and something that I couldn't do on my own, something that I couldn't um, in any way, shape, or form um, repay or deserved or um, in any way, shape, or form could have accomplished. Um, and when I realized that, I learned what the word freedom meant. And what's interesting is, is that now when I look back on my experiences and I look back on my brothers that have fallen and I look back on, you know, the, the patriots of before that have fallen for our country, um, it doesn't take away from what they have done. It adds weight to what they have done because our freedom comes at an extreme cost. And if you, you know, sometimes in America, we don't really understand that. But when you get outside of the, the borders of America and you travel around the world and you see different cultures and you see what severe persecution looks like, um, you really start to understand a little bit more how important freedom really is. So for me, I think that now when I, when I look at the guys that have fallen and given the ultimate sacrifice, I just think of freedom and that leads me to think of my Savior and that leads me to just celebrate today. Um, instead of, um, I guess I should say celebrate, but also give its due respect and its due weight. Thank you, Jake. (laughs) Expectations. What are your expectations today? We all have expectations Dr. Mark Brimbard, who's the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at New York's Kittering Hope Center, studied patients in the last year of their life who had terminal illnesses. And he's been doing that for a number of years. And he said what he's discovered are people who believe a few things that can really be either detrimental or life-giving. First of all, he said, people who simply believe that they are by accident, they came in by accident. In other words, they were not created by God, that it was random chance that this world evolved and that human beings came to, be, came to have life. He said, when they get to that point of death, they also recognize there's no point in death. There's nothing else we will cease to exist. And so their expectations usually become that of why bother? Why care? Why try? He said another expectation that leads to uh, hopelessness 
is that expectation that nothing bad should happen to me. I deserve a good life. I deserve health. I deserve everything that I have. And lastly, when people come to the place that they simply believe that it just doesn't matter what I do. I have no purpose in life. I simply exist. And now that I have no health, I have no purpose. You know what? Here's the good news for us. That God has expectations for you and for me. God does have expectations, and he has expectations because he divinely created you and me. And even when we suffer, even when we go through cancers and disease, and even when we experience the death of loved ones, we serve an almighty God who's not surprised and who possesses the power to redeem all things. So it's not that God forces suffering, but he redeems all things for his glory. The question becomes, will we be a part of it? I'm not saying it's easy. Last hour in the earlier service, I looked over to my left and I saw someone who had stage four cancer and who has four children. I saw someone close to them who lost a child in the last two weeks. Suffering that is immense and immeasurable. But you know what they each believe? Is that I was divinely created, that God is in control, and that I will steadfastly continue to trust him and love him. Because I have that purpose. I was created for his glory. So what are God's expectations for you this morning? Well, let's start at the beginning. The first expectation is that you would know him. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it goes like this, that we are more sinful and more wretched than we ever want to admit. There's nothing good in us. We will never be good enough to be accepted by God. We will never earn his favor. But here's the good news. You are more loved. You are more cared about, you are more recognized than you could have ever imagined by God Almighty. Thus, he gave Jesus, who came and lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died, so that if you would put your trust and hope in him, the Bible says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an expectation that God has for you. It's a gift that he has for you. As believers in Christ Jesus, there's another expectation that God has for us. And it goes like this. It's where we get our mission statement from. Loving God with all that we are and making more and better followers of Christ. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22? You know what he said? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then he said, the second greatest commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. God's expectation of us. And then the spirit of how we are to do it in. Found in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. And the Bible says this in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require? What does the Lord expect of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What does God expect of you? What does he require of followers of Christ but to do justice? And that word's pretty simple. It's to do what is right. It's to stand up for what is right. When we stand up for the gospel, when we stand up and defend those who cannot defend himself, when we defend those who are suffering, that is justice. And that is the spirit of which God demands us of us. And to love kindness, your translation might say mercy. The Hebrew word here is actually one of the greatest words in all of the Hebrew language for the Jew. It's called hesed. And it's loving kindness. We don't have the equivalent word. It's mercy, it's kindness, it's loving kindness, it's faithfulness. Let me give you the best example I know of. And it actually comes from the New Testament. And it's the most famous uh, parable that Jesus probably ever taught. It's the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son where the youngest son comes and says, Father, I'm ready for my inheritance. And he, in fact, is saying, Father, uh, I... I'm ready for you to go on. I'm ready for you to pass on and give it to me. But since you're not dead, I'll just take it right now if you don't mind. And so the father obliges him and he sends him off with his inheritance. And you know the story. The man, young man squanders it. And he gets to the place to where he is literally starving. He doesn't think he's going to be able to make it. And he thinks to himself, I can go and be a servant at my father's ranch, at my father's farm. I can go be a servant. Uh, maybe my dad will show grace to let me just be a servant. And so he heads home. But here's the picture of Hesed, of that loving, faithful, merciful kindness. Not what we deserve, but what God has committed to do and committed to be. When he saw his son afar off, the Bible says that he ran to him. He ran to him and he put a robe on his back. He put rings on his fingers and shoes on his feet and he embraced him, not because of what he he had done, but because of the father's hesed love for his son. Hesed, it's not about it being deserved or earned. It's about a committed, steadfast, strong-standing love concern And it's the mercy of God. And that's what God asks of his followers of Christ. And to walk humbly. Those are great expectations for us. Those are great instructions for us. And how do we manifest that out? How do we live that out? Well, God has given us three institutions. He designed this world. He designed our lives. And he designed three biblical institutions in which we can live this out. The first biblical institution is marriage and the family. We find Jesus telling us what it meant in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. And he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. And he says that God created man and woman. Man and woman he created. And he designed them in his image. 
so that the two would become one flesh. The Bible establishes the institution of marriage for us. This is the biblical institution of marriage. It's not up for us to define or to say what we want. This is a biblical institution. It was here before you, and it'll be here long after we leave, okay? But this is biblically what God expects from the followers of Christ Jesus. Number two institution, the church. This isn't just man-made. This just, just isn't a creation of mankind. It was de- it's a design institution of God. If you go back to the gospel again of Matthew and look at chapter 16, and the Bible says in uh, verse 16, Jesus asked a question of Peter. He said, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am, Peter? Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this, but the Father in heaven. And upon this rock, this profession of faith, I will build my church, an institution of God in which he works through. And then thirdly, the last biblical institution that we're not near as sure about sometimes as believers in Christ, the government. Yeah, we hear, we laugh, we talk, but do you know what? It's instituted by God. Look with me at Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7, and let's see what the Bible says to us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And by the way, I'm going to give you a little bit of information afterwards to help you understand this a little better. So I want you to remember this passage. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist exist, have been what? Instituted by God. Remember that we said there are three biblical institutions. This is established by God. It's been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists God, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, although sometimes that happens. It's not what they're supposed to be, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good, and what is good, and you will receive the approval, for he is God's servant of your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Now catch this this section right here. For he does not bear the sword in vain. We're talking about God here. He does not bear the sword in vain. He's talking about how he uses the government. For he is the servant of God, speaking of the government, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Now, that's a tough verse. That's a tough verse in Flower Mound, Texas in 2017 uh, when we're in a politically correct society. And it doesn't necessarily preach well because we don't like it and we don't understand it I want to make I want to remind you of something the Bible is infallible in other words it's wholly true it's wholly correct it's been designed for the purpose of how we live our life how we set our culture problem is our interpretation is not infallible that's the problem the Bible the Bible doesn't have a problem we have a problem it's called sin and it clouds our judgment and everything. So when we say statements like this, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. That's because you're not God. Let's continue. 
Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. Remember this. Again, we're going to come back to it in just a moment. or we're going to, I'm going to give you some things that will help understand this. But also for the sake of conscience, the Bible says. For because of this, you also pay taxes for authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, there are a lot of things going on in the United States of America that, that I struggle with. Rights and privileges. Some of you saw a video right before the service. Uh, things that are going on uh, as far as our military, uh, their, their rights, uh, prayer, um, there are a lot of things. If we had time, I would show you some things that, that are disturbing. Uh, and I would say you need to educate yourself as you read and, and pray. And we're going to do that at the end of the service. But here's what I want to tell you is that God is in control and he knows what's going on. Now, and if, to understand this better, let's look at three, real quickly, I want us to look at three ways uh, that the scripture uses uh, government. Three ways that the scripture is portrayed, or that the government is portrayed through scripture. There's three ways. The first way is as a refuge. If you go back to Genesis chapter 45 through 50, and you look particularly toward the end of Genesis, you'll read the story of Joseph, how he was uh, sold into slavery by his brothers, found himself in prison. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. He interprets some dreams, finds himself as second in command uh, in Egypt to the Pharaoh. And here he is. Uh, in authority, and he has another dream. He has he dreams, uh, basically interpretation of his dream, that there's going to be seven years of abundance, and this is the great, and this is not in Egypt. Actually, this area is spread out even further in Egypt. There was seven years of abundance, but then there was seven years of famine. And he prepared because he had the vision. God gave him the understand. In the abundance, they stacked it up. They prepared for those seven years to come. And what God enabled him to do was to be, that the Egyptian government, to be a government, an instrument of refuge. Matter of fact, his family comes. They would have starved, but they come and they buy grain and, and, and ultimately they come and they live in Egypt and they're, they're spared and their nation is able to prosper because of God using that Egyptian government as an instrument of refuge. Another example of how God uses uh, uses government sometime, and uh, we don't like this one. And by the way, we don't get to decide which one. Uh, but sometimes God uses government as an as a rod, a measure of discipline. In Isaiah chapter ten, verse five and six, we see that that's how God used the Assyrian pagan government to to bring about uh, discipline and reproof uh, upon the nation of Israel. God, we talked about that a while ago. Remember, we were reading Romans chapter 13, that God sometimes will exercise judgment through the government. Now, again, we don't go, God, I'm going to be an instrument of judgment. That's not the way it works, okay? It's not the way it works, but God sometimes does that. And the third way he uses government as a, is as a liberator. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, uh, fascinating passage. Uh, about a guy named Cyrus. I, I encourage you to go back and read and study Cyrus the Great. He's mentioned 30 times in Scripture. We don't know a lot about him uh, but we, from a biblical standpoint, but we know historically he was a tremendous figure. Uh, and he was pagan. He's a Persian emperor. And uh, he basically, it's really fascinating, there is scriptural prophecy that's given to us 
uh, in Isaiah that there would be one Cyrus who would come and he would basically rescue, deliver the nation of Israel. And that's exactly what happens 150 years later. And many scholars, matter of fact, even uh, Jose- uh, Josephus, who was a, a historian during Jesus' time, he says that Daniel, Daniel who would have served Cyrus, we know that, uh, under the Babylonian Empire, he would have served Cyrus, probably showed Cyrus this scripture and said, this is you, Cyrus. There's been prophecy about you that you would deliver our nation. And that's exactly what he does. He, he sets the nation free, allows them to go back. He helps to reconstruct the wall. He reconstructs the temple and he finances it. This is a pagan king that God uses as a liberator for the nation of Israel. Remarkable. So God can use government more than just what we can see. It's hard for us. That's why it's an imperative, and the Bible instructs us to pray for our government. Very, very important. Matter of fact, um, it's so important what we do and, and how we live and the decisions that we make. Are we following the expectations of Christ? Are we seeking to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind? Are we experiencing the gospel and sharing the good news of Christ? And are we are we living justly? Are we showing and demonstrating mercy as a people and as a nation? And, as our, and are we walking humbly? It's important. It has everything to do with who we become. It has everything to do with how God uses the nation. There was a young man named Eddie. And uh, Eddie <clears throat> became an attorney. But he wasn't a good attorney. Well, he was a very good attorney, but he was a corrupt attorney. He was a corrupt lawyer. It's the first time anybody had ever heard of that up to this point. And he, uh, he got to know a guy named Al Capone. And he was so good that Capone hired him to be his personal lawyer back in the 20s in Chicago. And through working for Capone, he became very, very wealthy had a huge home, a pool, servants, everything that he could want. His children lacked for nothing. He was able to give them everything. But the pressure started getting turned up. And Eddie saw what, where things were going, and he was trying to teach his children values, particularly his young son, Butch. But as he's teaching him what's right and wrong, he knows he's living this life, and his son's getting, beginning to be old enough to see it and to see the contrast of what his dad is saying and what his dad seems to be doing. There comes a point where Eddie can't take it anymore. He knows they're eventually going to catch up to Capone and he decides to turn him in knowing that he will probably lose his life because Capone was in every area of the city government, the police force. And so he turns him in and through the evidence that he presents, um, they're able to convict Capone and put him into prison. And shortly after that, he's murdered and he's killed, just as he thought. But his son had that example of what his father did with his last year of life. He remembered that. There's another story about another young man named Eddie, Eddie O'Hare. Eddie was uh, in the military. As a matter of fact, he'd gone to the academy he was serving in World War II, and he was a pilot, fighter pilot, 
And his squadron had just left. Matter of fact, his entire squadron on the Lexington fleet had flown out to a mission. And as they were going, after they'd gotten several miles out, he recognized his fuel tank was low. It had, someone had not fueled him up properly. And so he tells his squadron leader, and he says, I can go. And he said, no, you can't. I want you to go back. Go back to the ship. So he reluctantly pulls out and goes back. But on the way back, he, to his horror, he sees a sight of Japanese, a Japanese squadron headed toward the Lexington, which will be defenseless and most certainly destroyed. And he does the only thing that he can do. He begins to fire upon them. He takes down five fighter pilots and then goes through all his ammunition. And then at the end, he begins to to dive down and clip wings, trying to take them out. They get so disoriented, they finally just fly off and leave. And he sputters back and makes it back finally to to the ship. There was a recording on his plane that was able to verify it. And he ends up getting the Congressional Medal of Honor. And when you fly into Chicago, often you will fly into O'Hara Airport, named after Eddie O'Hara. Now, how do those stories connect? Easy Eddie was the father of Eddie Butch Eddie O'Hara. The decisions that we make in this life can have long-term impact upon those whom you love the most. What does God require of us? To love justice, to show mercy, and to walk humbly before our Lord, regardless of what our situation is, regardless of the pain, regardless of the suffering, regardless of the blessing. To love God with all that we are while making more and better followers of Christ. To love the Lord thy God and our neighbor as ourself. And to love what is right, to do what is right, to stand for what is right. These institutions that we talked about. Number two, to show mercy. To show mercy not to those who deserve it, but to those who need it. And to walk humbly. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to, make, it's going to bother some of you, so I realize that. Okay? So we're going to put, do a little litmus test of if we're walking humbly before the Lord God. I'm going to say a word, and what comes to your mind? Refugees. Oh, I, I know a lot of you got some strong feelings. But when you hear that word, what comes to your mind? God said our spirit should be this, to love justice, to show mercy, and to walk humbly. If pride and hate come to your heart, that's not the spirit that God expects from his followers. Now, in a couple weeks, we're going to talk about it on a Wednesday night about refugees and immigration. If you want to talk about that, I'd love for you to come talk with us about it. If you don't, that's fine too. But I will tell you this, God has expectations of us as believers in Christ. So one of the things that we do is we support matters of justice. One of the things that we do is we show mercy uh, when we pack food, when we give to missions, <clears throat> when we give to hunger. Because God has asked us to. And because it's mercy. 
And lastly, that we do it with a humble spirit. We recognize that there's nothing that we have that we deserved or have earned. It's all a gift from God. And that ought to humble us on this special weekend when we think about what Christ has done for us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. But because he hesed, he loved us with an everlasting love. If you've received that grace, then I challenge you to stand for justice. Show mercy and walk humbly before the Lord your God.